So if you look at pre-COVID, I think if you were looking at getting a 10-year Fannie Mae loan on a multifamily property, I think you would have been at maybe 4.8%, something like that. And now you can get deals done at maybe 2.8% or 3%. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Hey guys, so today I'm speaking with Raj Gupta. Raj is, he's a co-founder of Impact Prosperity. So interestingly enough, he was a former attorney for the U.S. Navy. And I want to thank him for his service. And at some point, Raj transitioned to being a financial advisor to super high net worth individuals. I want to welcome Raj to the show today. Hey, Raj. Hi, Ellie. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And thank you again for, you know, for your service. Not easy days, you know, these days. So like we've, we've talked right before we started recording, a lot of things are happening these days and we shouldn't be taking anything for granted. Yep. No, that's right. Pretty crazy times. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you started in the military and you transitioned to you know, investing. I would love to hear more about, you know, I know you, we've met before, but I don't know much about your, your military, you know, background. Can you share a little bit more with me about that and how you made the transition to real estate? Sure. I mean, I suppose even before joining the military, I come from an investment background. I sort of grew up around it. My father mm -hmm. was and is in his eighties, still a financial advisor. So I kind of grew up with it. I used to work with him when I was in college you know, 30 years ago. So kind of grew up around that. I decided to go to law school in the 90s. And at that point, I was very interested in joining the Navy. One of my best friends in college was a Navy guy and used to tell me stories about traveling the world and, and all of that. And I always, like many people, thought it was a noble thing to do. And the adventure of it all kind of appealed to me. And and so as soon as I got into law school, I actually applied for the Navy JAG Corps like within a week of starting and got accepted into the program after my first year. And as soon as I graduated law school and passed the bar exam, I got shipped off. Well, not shipped off, but I went to Rhode Island. Mm. I think you're in, are you in Providence? I am. Yeah. Yes. So I went to Newport, which I'm sure you're huh. familiar with. Yeah. There's a Navy base right by the water, right near the main bridge. That's right. Yeah. Beautiful bridge and the Naval War College is there, kind of a famous building. And so I went there for training, officer training, and then also what's called Naval Justice School, which is like the Navy's version of law school. And after that, I got sent overseas to Italy, which was my top choice. I, I was fortunate. This was in February of 2001. And I got sent to Naples, Italy, which was an amazing experience. It was right before 9-11 and right before we started entering into the Afghanistan war and then the Iraq war. And it was a pretty crazy time. So lived in Italy for about four years. 
And then I decided, made the hard decision, even though I loved it, and made the decision to leave active duty and then join the reserves. And then I've been in the reserves ever since. So I actually just hit my 20th year wow. this past July. So, Wow, that's one hell of a background. <laughs> you've traveled around and, and you've done things. That's really impressive. Yeah. And so, you know, my work as a lawyer back then in Italy was I did a lot of different things, legal assistance, which was like broad general practice, but also did litigation. So I was in quite a bit of experience in the courtroom. I was mm -hmm. defense counsel. So if a service member got accused of something, you know, they needed a lawyer. That's where I would come in. But it was it was a phenomenal experience besides the work experience, just putting on the uniform every day as a naval officer and serving, you know, it's a cliche, but serving your country. And, you know, it's a different feeling than doing real estate, for example, which I also love, but it's different. And then just the life experience of living in Italy and traveling all over Europe and kind of seeing the world. Yeah. It was phenomenal. I, so. I can only imagine. At what point did you make the transition? Because I know some people that are actively, you know, are in active military duty, many of them bought homes or they're thinking about transitioning sure. to full-time investing. Some of them are waiting until they retire. I think it's about 20 years or so until, or 25 years until you retire. And then you- 20, yeah. 20 years and you're 45 yeah. or 40 years old and you're retired. And now, now what do you do? So how right. is it for you? Yeah. I mean, so for me, when I joined, I thought I could have made a career out of it and stayed in. And I actually loved it. I loved the Navy and uh, loved the work as a Navy JAG officer is what the lawyers are called. And certainly the life experiences. I decided to get out. It was one of the hardest decisions I ever made. I decided to leave active duty back in 2004. And primarily because I had gotten married in 2000 and we hadn't had any kids. And uh, we were halfway across the world from family. And, you know, if you stay in the Navy, you're going to move every three years and it could be anywhere in the world. And it's hard to kind of settle down. My parents were getting older. My wife's parents were getting older. We wanted to start a family and have kids and kind of settle mm -hmm. down and decided that I would get out and settle back down in the Chicago suburbs and come back home. But I loved it enough that I wanted to stay in and not completely disconnect. So I stayed in the reserves and got it. I'm still still in even today. Interesting. Interesting. Can you share with me, you know, what you would say to someone who is in the military and, you know, wants to start investing in real estate, maybe, you know, transition full time once they retire or maybe earlier? What would you say to them? You know, it's, it's really interesting. In the military, you get a housing allowance and it's tax free. And most people obviously use it to pay rent, but the people that are a little bit more ambitious and a little bit more aggressive can actually use that housing allowance to make mortgage payments and they can actually buy a house. And then let's say they're on three-year orders, they could live in it. And then once they get new orders and they get you know stationed somewhere else, they could rent it out. And then same thing, wherever they're assuming that they're living in the United States, they can do the same thing in their next duty station and buy a place, use the housing allowance to pay the mortgage and then rent it out when they leave. And I mean, you have to have a certain personality and I guess be yeah. ambitious enough for that, but people do it. And it's a way, you know, you don't get rich serving in the military, but can you imagine after 20 years and you've got six or seven homes that you've been able to purchase along the way That's using your military pay to mm -hmm. buy it? I think that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, that could definitely could be a start of a base of some, well, some cash flow that you can later, exactly. you know, reinvest and grow your money this way mm -hmm. over time. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about economic cycles. You know, it's really interesting what's happening today is certainly abnormal. And I'm personally, I'm fascinated with trends and data. And I was looking at 2007. I was not investing at the time. I was a real estate lawyer. So I've witnessed a lot of the mistakes of my investor clients were making and learned a lot from it. And then we have today's recession and with kind of a question mark around the word recession because some industries are clear winners and some of them are clear losers. And yeah. not in a derogatory way, but you know, some of them are really struggling, like the hospitality in service industries. And, you know, we'd love to hear, you know, what do you think about the market cyclicality? How do you view the different cycles? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think this is a hugely important topic for any investment, certainly multifamily real estate, but really, you know, stock market, bond market, any investment. It's really important to understand the market environment that impacts the performance of that investment. And I think not enough people pay attention to it. I would be willing to say that maybe 80%, even in multifamily, of the investment returns come from the economic cycle that we're in, buying the right asset in the right part of the economic cycle in the right location. And then, you know, the remaining 20% is how you manage the asset and, you know, executing on the business plan and, you know, whether it's value add or, or something else. But I think you have to look at the broader macro environment and buy the right asset class because different asset classes perform differently at different parts of the cycle. And so that's, it's really important. So for example, you know, maybe mobile home parks make the most sense or make more sense in a particular part of the cycle, or maybe self-storage or maybe assisted living. I know you had Loan recently, who's a friend and, and specializes in assisted living. I mean, one of the advantages of that is it tends to be more recession-proof compared to other real estate asset classes. Same with self-storage. So I think it's really important whether you're doing class A, class B, or class C, they perform differently in different parts of the cycle as well for multifamily. So I think it's really important. And I think there's opportunities in every part of the cycle, but it's really important to be mindful of where we are and what the risks are, because every part of the cycle has its own risks and has its own opportunities. And as an investor, as a smart investor, you want to take advantage of those opportunities based on where we are in the cycle, and then also be very mindful of the risks and mitigate those risks to the largest extent possible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love what you said, that there's risks in every part of the cycle. I think there's kind of, you know, maybe an euphoric feeling when the market was very strong, yeah. you know, actually right before COVID, the feeling was that you have to invest in real estate, you have to buy, you know, everyone is making money, but it was actually, I'm not saying it was riskier than now, obviously there's risk, but it was risky to buy at the height of the market and right. underwrite, you know, three to 5% rent increases year over year, but the cycle will shift at some point and you right. won't be able to get those rent bumps unless they're always outliers. If you bought under market, for instance, you know, we bought exactly. an asset and the owner wanted, he thought he was saving money by self-managing but all of his rents were way below market. Whatever yeah. he was saving, quote unquote, on the two and a half, three percent 
you know, property management fee, he was losing on rent and losing millions on the sale because, you know, he did the NOI was lower. And we just raised, I think, right off the bat, close to $100 overnight before we even renovated anything. And, <laughs> and we got zero pushback because we knew we were buying below market. Yeah. I mean, I think like your example of where the rents are below market, that's a risk mitigating factor. Right. Right. So like, for example, like one of the main risks is what, you know, you can call economic risk or cyclical risk, right? So the risk of the economy going down into a recession and incomes going down, right? Wages going down, incomes going down, people getting laid off, and then they can't afford your rent. And so, you know, you have to think of it in a couple of different ways. Is that the right environment to do a value add strategy? Probably not, right? If you're at the top of the market where rents are already been going up for five or six years, you know, there's a limit to how much you can continue doing upgrades and increasing rents because people at some point aren't going to be able to afford it anymore because rents are going up faster than incomes, right? So you have to be mindful of that. Now, if you find a deal like the one example you were just giving where the rents are, you know, $100 or more below market, well, you know, you still may want to be careful raising rents in an environment where it's a recession or something, but at least you have, you don't have to put money into the property in that example. You know, the worst thing you can do is put money into a property, hoping that you can raise rents and then you can't raise rents because of the economy. So if you find a deal where you can raise rents as is without putting additional capital in, that's good. I mean, that helps mitigate the risk for sure. And maybe, you know, maybe you have to delay it. Maybe you don't increase rents right away and you wait. Most recessions, I think the average recession is like 11 months. So, you know, you can wait it out. And then when the people get back to work and unemployment goes back down again and incomes go back up again, and then, you know, maybe that's the right time to raise the rents. But I think it's really important just to be very aware of the macro environment that we're in. You know, pre-COVID, we were certainly at the top of the cycle. You don't know exactly when it's going to turn down. That's right. But it's pretty mm -hmm. clear based on looking at objective criteria that we were closer to the top than the bottom for sure. And it was long in the tooth. I mean, the expansion went from, let's say, 2009, 2010 till 2020. That was a 10-year expansion. I think the longest in history. Yeah. And so yeah. it's really important. I mean, I'm a syndicator just like you are, like basically full time. And, you know, there's still deals to be had, but you better be careful like how you're underwriting and what business strategy you're planning on implementing. And it better make sense even if the economy starts to go down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying. Basically, you know, I know that some investors just stopped investing altogether three, four years ago because they said, we think that the cycle, you know, we're at the height of the market and then every year prices went up again and went up again. I mean, I mean real estate prices. So you can't yeah. really know. It's always, you know, it's always 2020. It's always in hindsight when you look back yeah. and you understand that was the height of the market. I remember having the feeling that prices can't go any higher and they kept, they kept going. They kept going. <laughs> but, you know, the most interesting part in that to me is since COVID hit, at least since we were aware of its existence, presence in the U.S., March to May, kind of frozen market, very few were making deals because nobody knew how, what we're going to be dealing with. And since then, it seems like the market kind of jumped back to where it was pre-COVID. Yeah. yeah, even we, higher. Yeah, that's right. Even higher because now sellers are saying, you see, even when the world is is upside down, we are still making money. We're, the NOI yeah. is still, you know, kind of flat. So 
it makes sense for us to still sell at four and a half, five cap. Yeah. And I think it's it's mind boggling. I'm not saying these yeah. are not good deals, but I think it's just interesting. I can still underwrite some deals that would still make sense. Some of them are not, even with the higher, you know, even with pretty compressed, you know, cap rates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the reality is that I think prices continued going higher after the summer, let's say, during the pandemic, largely because interest rates dropped. So if you look at pre-COVID, I think if you were looking at getting a 10-year Fannie Mae loan on a multifamily property, I think you would have been at maybe 4.8%, something like that. And now you can get deals done at maybe 2.8% or 3%. And so you know, it's a lot easier to pay more for a property when you can lock in 10 or 12 year debt at 2.8%. And so what happens is it ends up being a number numbers game. I'm sure you're, you're very analytical. And when you're underwriting a deal, the terms of the debt are, are critical, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, you're targeting a certain cash on cash return, or let's say a total return over five years. And when the debt is 2.8%, you know, it allows you to pay more and that's what's happened. And even though there's macro risk and pandemic risk and collections risk and all of that stuff, which is definitely there, I think, you know, it only makes sense because of how cheap the debt is. Otherwise, there's no way it would make sense. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah, absolutely. It it wouldn't have worked. Let me ask you this. Did you pivot at all in the type of, in your strategy, you know, value add or any other type of assets that you're buying pre-COVID versus what you're doing now, because we're basically in the cycle kind of shifted since March? Yeah, it's such an odd thing, right? Because there's, you know, there's the normal cyclicality of the economy, right? So, you know, recessions come and go and economic booms come and go. But this was sort of unusual, right? We went into a deep recession and it was very fast, but it wasn't organic, so to speak, right? So I think, you know, the first few months, March, April, May, I was just not even looking at, I wasn't even underwriting deals. It was just, there was too much uncertainty. And also there was a big disconnect. I think you've talked about this before. There's a big disconnect between buyers and sellers because buyers were looking for a COVID discount as we used to term it. And sellers were like, nah, you know, this might be temporary. I'm just going to hold out for a few months. I'm not going to sell it at a discount. And there was this big gap and deals just stopped getting done. And brokers were telling their sellers, hey, just wait a few months because, you know, they also didn't feel comfortable selling in this environment and they knew that it might be difficult. Then at some point, I think late summer, it started a shift. I think multifamily ended up performing better than people were fearing. Mm -hmm. And I, we didn't know what to expect. We were positioning ourselves for 30% drops in collections, which would have been catastrophic, right? But it ended up being for most people, I think maybe 10%, you know, five to 10%, depending on the asset. And which was, you know, not fun, but also it was sustainable, you know, especially if you had enough cash reserves and and didn't have to refinance right away. Right. So I think people just got a little bit less scared in general, and especially with multifamily, having kind of proven that it, it can stand, withstand sort of these challenges. And then again, the interest rates dropped significantly. And to unprecedented levels, right? I mean, yeah. uh, imagine like being able to, like I refinanced a, a deal in Houston, and we locked in for 12 years at 2.96%. Before that, it was on a bridge loan where we were at 5.62%. Wow, that's very signi- that's significant. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so again, it just makes a lot of things work and it also reduces your risk. I mean, you know, if you have to refinance in two years and you don't know if you're going to be in the middle of a recession in two years, that's a risk. 
right? That you have to be aware of. But if you can lock in for 10 or 12 years at those interest rates, it's very attractive. And so I started looking, I guess, at deals again, kind of late summer. And, you know, I would say that, yeah, I started underwriting them differently, I think was your original question, because I don't think this is the environment in general, every deal can be different, but in general, where you want to aggressively raise rents in a situation where we have, you know, 10 million people or 20 million people out of work and in the demographic, right? The demographic that are usually our residents in class B or B minus properties, the blue collar workers, those are the people that got hit the worst probably. So, you know, I think you want to look at a value add, but maybe a delayed value add. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe you put the CapEx to funds to work in year two or year three, at least underwrite it that way. And then yes. don't expect that in year one, you're going to, you know, underwrite all these rent increases. So that's one thing for sure. The other thing is that certainly I should say with all the uncertainty with the pandemic and that uncertainty means how bad are things going to get? How long is it going to last? How effective are the government programs going to be in countering the pandemic and the economic crisis? A lot of variables, a lot of unknowns, things that are outside of our control. So one thing for sure that we started doing is just raising additional capital for reserves. And more than normal, I mean, you always raise additional working capital and reserves when you syndicate. But I would say, you know, maybe doing double or triple that just to be safe. So because you don't know what you don't know. And it's very true. So I think that's a really important part of it. And also... If you do raise extra capital like that, it's going to have an impact on your returns. So there's a couple of things, right? If you're buying at historically high value valuations, which is what you know properties are trading at nowadays, and we have all this uncertainty, and you're going to raise extra cash reserves, it's going to have an impact on your returns. And by the Absolutely. way, your leverage is going to be lower because the debt mm -hmm. coverage ratio is not going to allow you to get 80% financing on most deals. It might be 70%, maybe 65%. Yeah. And and so it's going to affect your returns. So you also have to frame expectations for your investors, right? That at the end of the day, every investment, you have to look at it from a risk versus reward standpoint. You can't just look at it from a return standpoint. You have to look at it from a return and risk standpoint. And it's, I tell people, you know, the analogy, sports analogy is it's about singles right now, maybe singles and doubles if you're lucky, right? It's not about hitting home runs. Now, those of us that have been doing multifamily for five, six, seven years, we've probably hit some home runs, right? Where you get hundreds of percent, you know, returns and, and things like that. But, you know, I don't think that's the environment that we're in right now. You can win a lot of baseball games hitting singles. And I think it's important to have that dialogue with your investors or with your potential investors. You know, I mean, if you can get an 80% return, let's say over five years, which, you know, I think a lot of deals can still underwrite at those levels. That's not bad. And by the way, that's with raising a bunch of extra capital for reserves to reduce risk. Yeah, exactly. Which right. dilutes equity, which impacts, you know, impacts returns because then you have more investors you need to pay for because you had that's to, right. yeah, you had to raise more. Yeah. I mean, it, it is insane because right now, Freddie and Fannie, the lenders, if you go with an agency debt, they require, you know, we put, I think it was 2.1 or 2.2 million in COVID reserves, they call it. Yeah. So yeah. you need to have yeah. extra. If your DSCR is 1.3 in the next nine months, if you pay your debt every month like a clock, yeah. you get it back. Right. And so you got to find creative ways. You can raise more equity. You can allocate some of the CapEx to that 
to the reserves, a little bit riskier because what if you don't get it back? What if your DSCR is going to drop to 1.28? That's right. Still a pretty good DSCR, but yeah. it doesn't hit their, you know, yeah. it's not up to their standards and then you're not going to get it and you're not going to have cash to start improving right. the property and pushing rents. And so there's a lot of a lot of moving parts. I yeah. wonder really when the cycle is going to shift again. You know, if it's going to be the end of the year after everyone is going to get vaccinated. Who knows? We don't really know. Nobody, if somebody knew for a fact they would be multi-billionaires, you know, we, we don't really know. But what we can do is try and play it as safe as we can, but you still need yeah. to take a risk because it is an investment after all. Right. Yeah. You just have to be smart with your risks and be very, yeah. you know, eyes wide open. Right. I mean, I would say this, what makes uh, the economy turn around like normally 70% of our economy is consumer consumption, right? Consumer spending. And typically what happens in a recession, people get laid off and then they kind of hunker down yeah. and they stop spending money. And then, then businesses, earnings, revenues go down and earnings go down. And so that's the normal kind of cycle. And then at some point, people start getting their jobs back. And then as they start earning more money, then they spend it. And then it kind of, it's a loop that feeds on itself. So they spend, then businesses start to make more money, then they hire more and things like that, right? Then they pay their workers more and then unemployment goes down. And so again, it's, it's kind of like a virtuous feedback loop. And so, I mean, I think my feeling would be in terms of when we get out of this and we go back into like a booming economy, I think it's when unemployment goes back down to 4% or 5%, you know, like yeah. healthy levels, because if people aren't spending money, if they're not earning money, they're not spending money. If they're not spending money in our economy, 70% is consumer spending. Our economy is not going to really recover until people start spending again. So I think just keep a very close eye on the unemployment numbers. I think that's going to be the main indicator to look at. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And I know there's more and more people are actually spending more than they did before COVID because they're home. There's nothing much to do. They're not traveling, so they're not spending <laughs> the money there. Some yeah. of them are getting, they're still employed and they get the stimulus checks and the, the next yeah. round is supposed to hit every day. And so you have, you still have people ordering more and more stuff online because they're bored yeah. because, you know, they have more disposable income. And then you have those who suffer, who were unemployed, who got laid, laid off. off and Yeah. And so yeah. there's maybe it balances out a bit, but I think you're right. By the time, you know, when unemployment is going to go down, then we're going to start seeing the shift. And until then, if you invested in a right, you know, in a property that most of your tenants haven't been impacted or have been impacted by, they still have, you know, the, their partner or other source of, of income that they can actually pay rent, then you feel it a little bit less. Yeah. You know, well, it's very bifurcated now. Yes. So, I mean, if you look at e-commerce businesses, for example, have done phenomenal, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense. But then if you look at other industries, like, you know, anything related to travel or dining, you know, a lot of small businesses, they may never come back. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that recovery is going to be a little bit challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be super quick, kind of a U-shape or V-shape, yeah. V-shape, yeah. then U-shape. And now I'm not, I'm not <laughs> thinking about shapes. I just wanted to go back and I understand it's going to take time. So
Raj, we've arrived to the lightning round questions okay. part. That's the five quick question that I ask okay. everyone on the show. The first one is about your favorite hobby. And please don't tell me buying multifamily property. <laughs> well, I, gosh, I mean, I'm busy working. I don't, I used to have a lot of hobbies. I don't spend as much time on them as mm. I used to, but I would have to say, I would have to say traveling. I mean, just in terms of uh, passion. And of course, I haven't done nearly as much during COVID, but I love traveling. It's a passion of mine has been for, you know, since I was in college, I guess. And I think my last time I counted, I'd been to like 46 countries, I think. Wow. So, wow. So I'm looking forward to, you know, when it's safer to travel again and then getting back out there. So. Wow. All right. What's the one thing that people normally don't know about you and you're willing to share with us? <laughs> Gosh, let me say several things. One thing that, you know, I haven't talked about a lot, but I, I used to be really into wilderness survival training. Oh, wow. So I used to learn about it, educate myself on it. And then also I went to some very intense wilderness survival training back in 1995. I did a month long wilderness survival training. It's considered the most intense non-military survival training called Boulder Outdoor Survival School. So yeah, I was really, really into that. And so I haven't talked about that in many, many years. So huh. I don't think a lot of people know about that. So if you are going to be left out, find yourself in the middle of a huge forest, in the middle yeah. of nowhere, you know how to survive. Yeah, I'm probably a little rusty, but yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> those are the kinds of things that we learned about and trained on how to make shelter and how to protect yourself against the elements and yeah interesting all right what do you wish that you had known when you you know first got into real estate well i think you know when i first got into real estate i bought a 16 unit foreclosure in east detroit like the worst part of town and wow. detroit lost half its population it was the worst hit metro you know anywhere in the u.s kind of going back to what we talked about before how important the macro variables are, right? You want to look at things like population growth and employment growth and invest in those areas. So I'm an Illinois guy and I don't own any multifamily in Illinois because I don't like the economy and the population's actually been dropping over the last five years slightly. And so my focus is on Dallas and, and Houston and where there's you know, tremendous population growth and employment growth. And so I think it's really important going back to what, how we started talking about just, you know, really being aware of where we are in the cycles and looking mm -hmm. at these macro variables, like where the growth is, you know. Other than that, I think it's, you know, the other thing that I would say that I think a lot of people say that have been doing this for a while is they wish they would have thought bigger when they started, you know, and gone bigger quicker. And that's not to say, because I know some people that go too quick, I think, you know, where they're still learning and they're syndicating a deal every, every month or something. But I think, you know, there has to be a balance. But I think being a little bit more aggressive when you're starting off, and that could mean, by the way, partnering with people. You don't have to do it on your own. Partner with people that are more experienced. Get your feet wet. Learn the ropes from more experienced people, even if you just get a small stake in it. But I think that's how you do it. If you don't have the ability to raise capital, for example, because you don't have a big network, partner with somebody that's got a big network and can raise capital easier. But maybe you can bring something else to the table, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. And Raj, if investors want to reach out to you and talk to you, where can they find you? How can they do that? Yeah, the best way to reach me, they can email me, Raj, that's R-A-J, at impactprosperity.com. And I'm on Facebook. I belong to a lot of the multifamily real estate groups there. So yeah, happy to connect with anyone. All right. Awesome. Raj, 
Thank you so much. It was really fun talking with you and learning more about your military background. That was really, really <laughs> interesting because we, we never had a chance to talk about it when we connected in person. Yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you, Ellie. Appreciate it. Had fun. All right. Awesome. And guys, I hope that you learned something from our conversation today. I know times are crazy, but it will get better. You heard Raj, the real estate market is cyclical. So we're in a certain, you know, rough right now. It's going to get better. Be bold, guys. Be great. Keep moving forward. And I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.